Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everyone. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Stephen Taylor, General Manager, Anti-Money Laundering at NICE Actimize, which helps financial institutions to do two things. First, prevent, detect and investigate financial crimes such as money laundering and fraud. Secondly, remain compliant with the various national rules and regulations governing Know Your Client, anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism and sanctions screening. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Now, as I've just done, we tend to lump together uh, the obligations laid on financial institutions by FATF and others to combat financial crime, namely this Know Your Client, anti-money laundering, CFT, sanction screening. But in practical day-to-day operational terms inside financial institutions, how much overlap in practice is there between these different types of, of crime, these different disciplines? Um, I would say that it's moving in the right direction and that a lot of firms understand that there is uh, an important connection between the various different functions. But traditionally, um, you know, the function of knowing your client and something like transaction monitoring might have actually have been, you know, done in, the, in, in actual silos, right? Um, now, obviously, that isn't ideal because one does tend to inform the other. Um, but, you know, I am seeing now a, a greater trend towards organizations actually bringing these functions together and, you know, having a much broader view of um, financial crime management. Now, you say things are moving in the, in the right direction. There's a, there's a broader view being taken. At what level in yep. the organization is it being taken? Is this getting the senior management attention that it probably needs? I, w- I would say it does. I mean, like, ultimately... Um, you know, all financial institutions that I've come in contact with take their AML obligations incredibly seriously. Um, they know that um, it's something um, that is mandated. They know that it's also very important to track the flows of money. They are aware of the, um, you know, the, the, the potential um, of money laundering for, um, you know, uh, causing great social problems. So I think that, broadly speaking, they are taking this seriously, for sure. I'm pretty concerned about getting fined by the regulators as well. Yes, of course. Um, but you, you probably have to think about this every day as you're, as you're approaching potential clients. But who inside the average financial institution, if there is such a thing, which company officer really takes responsibility? Is it the CTO, the CIO, the, the CISO? The CRO, the COO, the CFO, or is it even the CEO sometimes? Who do you, who's a sort of go-to decision taker for you when you're approaching a financial institution? Generally speaking, if we're going, if we're going to talk to a, an organisation, the, the, the key point of contact will be the money laundering reporting officer or the BSA uh, officer, um, you know, depending on the location, BSA in the US, MLRO um, in, in the UK and, and around Europe. Um, generally, those are the people that we will be talking to on a day-to-day basis. However, compliance in general um, has to come from the top. It has to come from the CEO, right? If um, the culture is such that compliance is an important part of what the bank or the financial institution um, is, is taking care of, I think that everything else will flow from there. If 
there is not necessarily a strong culture that enforces compliance, maybe that's when some of these financial irregularities may actually occur. But I would say, you know, day-to-day, chief compliance, BSA, MLRO, um, chief risk officer, to a certain extent, would also be very much involved. CEO, that's where the tone from the top comes. Everything else will work around it. Now, you, you've just used the word culture, and you've implied that it's set from the very top of the organization by the CEO. But let's accept culture as perhaps less nebulous than it, than it possibly is. But to what extent do you find when you get inside financial institutions, and I imagine this varies quite a lot, that the culture is very much to view compliance as a uh, a very tiresome overhead or, or what is often called the business prevention department yeah. or do you think that attitude is changing now culturally how comfortable are people inside organizations with with everything they have to do uh, to prevent financial crime i think that if you'd asked me that question a few years ago i would have definitely have said that it is seen as maybe a bit more business prevention um and, and a bit more of a kind of as it were cop on the street um but things are changing very much i mean you know obviously from a cultural perspective um a lot of financial institutions understand and accept the importance of compliance and if you tie compliance to ethics good business ethics then it makes sense to have a strong compliance function right and as a, as a result of that obviously compliance is a much more involved participant in company strategy and direction so um, I would say that the kind of balance is shifting a little bit, right, from, oh, you know, compliance is seen as a business prevention unit to a business enablement unit. If you have strong compliance programs in place, that's actually a strategic asset, right, that allows the banks to confidently expand its business practices, whether or not it's to merge with another institution, whether or not it's to do cross-border um, product offerings, whether or not it's to release new product offerings within a domestic jurisdiction. Having a strong compliance function enables that growth to happen. Now, you mentioned at the outset that uh, financial institutions can, uh, those getting better, they can operate in these silos between the, the people doing KYC and the people possibly doing suspicious transaction reporting, for example. But are there silos also between business functions inside a financial institution, by which I mean maybe the cash or payments division never talks to the securities division or the equity division never talks to the, the fixed income division and if so is that a problem for you and would closer integration between business lines be helpful in dealing with financial crime yeah i think some of those kind of silos of of being very traditional it's it's there's always going to be a tension between front and back office there's always going to be a tension between lines of business um you know that's that's kind of maybe just part of the way in which organizations operate. But, you know, what we're, what we're also seeing is a general push from the banks to have, or financial institutions, to have a more holistic view of what's going on within their organizations. You know, having things operating in silos is not efficient. It simply is not going to help the banks understand what their um, financial crime risk is overall. But it's not just about the compliance side of things. It's, it's not efficient when it comes to, you know, bringing on board new customers, right? If each silo is trying to do that independent of one another, then that just replicates effort, replicates um, problems, replicates, you know, friction, as it were, for the customer. So bringing some of this more together, having a more holistic view on 
um, you know, the business operations of the financial institutions. It's going to enable banks to perform an awful lot better overall. Now, if banks are getting more, if banks are getting more integrated and more holistic in their approach, albeit slowly, from what you're saying, what does that imply for your own product set? Are you having to integrate your own products across KYC, AML, CFT, and and sanctions as well, and, and market surveillance? Are you having to offer a more holistic product to them? Yeah. Previously, you were dealing with different silos within a bank. Absolutely. I think that, you know, at Actimize, we have been um, very much a proponent for integrated solutions. But, you know, we're, we're beginning to see that that integration between the functions is becoming more important as the banks really try to understand their financial, um, you know, crime risk in of itself, right? Um, I, I often say that, you know, the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone, right? All of this is connected in some way, shape or form. You know, as you're going through the process of onboarding a customer, understanding, you know, everything about their risk profile, monitoring what they're doing on an ongoing basis, all of this is connected back, um, you know, uh, in an iterative circle of feedback loop that enables the banks to really fully understand the behavior of those customers. And as a result, really begin to understand where the suspicion may be. Let's cut to the the, the chase here about about how one goes about combating financial crime inside a inside a financial institution. Clearly, you're, you're looking for financial criminals committing financial crimes, but one of the problems which has uh, which banks often mention to me is a very high rate of of false positives. Yeah. What what are you, what are you doing, and what can be done in principle to reduce false positives? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I think it's something that pains financial institutions on an ongoing basis. And, you know, having all this noise is just, um, you know, a tremendous cost burden on the institution. But more importantly, and and, and the thing that bothers me most of all, all that noise could actually mask uh, identifying the true financial crime. So in some instances, you know, some of the false positive rates have happened just because of the way in which systems have worked, right? So, you know, many, many years ago, when you're looking at transaction monitoring, you were looking just at transaction monitoring, you were just looking at the transactions you were using, um, you know, potentially very um, rudimentary algorithms to understand, you know, what those patterns of behavior could actually mean. You were looking at something in isolation, right? Now, to a certain extent, um, by its very nature, looking at things in isolation, would generate an awful lot of, well, is this or is this not, um, you know, a suspicious activity. So, you know, in the past, I would have said that, you know, having these systems all kind of disconnected, siloed, looking at things from maybe just one perspective, it's inevitable that you're going to have false positives. But as we progressed and started bringing the systems together, we're beginning to understand and see more clearly the behavioral activity themselves. Now, when you layer into that advances in technology, specifically around machine learning capabilities, you can really start beginning to make some significant improvements. So if you can better segment and auto segment your customers into proper population groups, say for instance, uh, where you're not trying to compare a hotel, a major hotel with a bed and breakfast, right? Or a corner shop with a supermarket. If you can better segment in the first instance, then you can better apply specific rules um, or machine learning technology that will detect the suspicious activity against those particular, um, you know, segments and population groups. 
if you can use the machine learning, which can auto um, tune and, and be con continuously optimized, to make sure that you can understand the activity in the best possible way. Again, that will go some way. Machine learning around predictive scoring, being able to, um, because of the disposition history, better understand um, what could be um, uh, a SAR and what may not actually register as a SAR ultimately, because you can um, use the machine learning technology to gauge a number of different factors to understand what is going to be potentially important. Um, anomaly detection is a great way of being able to really identify across, you know, terabytes of information, what could be an anomaly that could be a suspicious activity. So those are some of the machine learning capabilities that I think will help dramatically in improving detection rates. And we've seen, you know, reductions of 60, 70% in false positive rates just by employing machine learning technology. But when you layer into that again, um, what we call the entity-centric view of AML, where you are, um, you know, you're looking at the customer, you're taking a customer and you're really enriching the profile of that individual or that organization. You really understand everything about them. You're understanding the networks between them and other entities or other organizations. Then you can, you can look at the transactions through the lens of that holistic customer risk. And that in of itself will help um, investigators help um, organizations better determine what could be seen as a suspicious activity. I was going to ask you about, uh, about artificial intelligence machine learning because I, I could see that it has a role to play here. And since you brought it up, let, let's talk about it a bit more now. Sure. What are the ways in which it's helping? Is it, is it just reading vast amounts of data? Is it in every cut costs? It, it's obviously making some contribution to reducing false positives, but I, I think I heard you say it's also enabling you to plot networks that this individual is linked to that individual, this company linked to that one and so on. Correct. I think that, you know, the, the, the beauty of machine learning technology is, you know, it thrives on data. It, the more you can throw at it, the, the more intelligent it becomes. And, you know, it can self-learn, right? So again, over a period of time, it just gets better and better and better. So there are things uh, that can be used to, you know, as I say, segment and, and tune um, rules specifically, but I'm excited about the ability to understand the networks, right? Um, again, going back to the knee bone connected to the thigh bone, sometimes those connections are explicit and easy to see. Um, sometimes those connections are not. And, you know, you're looking for the, the hidden breadcrumbs, right, between individuals and entities to understand, well, actually, you know, how, how is some of this, um, you know, the flows of money, how are those potentially being, um, you know, layered within, within the world, right? How is that money kind of, as it were, being hidden um, from, from, you know, one account to another account, from one individual to a different individual or between organizations? You know, um, criminals don't just go to one place and say, okay, I'm just gonna order the money, right? They are successful by flowing money through various different routes um, to actually hide what they're, what they're actually doing. So network analysis, I think, is, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And network analysis is being applied specifically to trying to track uh, illicit money flowing through layer after layer of, of organizations, yep. through, through companies, jurisdictions. And so that's where it's really useful, is it, this network analysis. 
I think so. Yes, it's it, it's useful to understand the flows of money, but it's it's also useful to see, you know, where there may be potential risk between individuals. You know, um, Steve Taylor is married to Danny Taylor, my wife, she's a wonderful lady. Now, obviously, that's an easy thing to detect, but if there's then one individual. Um, who is then, you know, kind of connected to another individual and maybe then goes to a high-risk person, high-risk organisation, whether or not that's a pet, whether or not that's a, you know, a suspicious person within, you know, um, a sanctioned jurisdiction. That's the kind of connections that could also enable us to say, okay, well, this person on, on the face bit doesn't look scary, but because of these connections, now we're going to have to pay some attention, you know, additional attention to this individual or this organisation. You know, that's where it can also be critical. And now we just touched upon drilling through layers of of, of corporate uh, entities. Yeah. One of the things which banks and and fund administrators, indeed fund managers, complain to me is much more difficult than tracking um, retail criminals, if you like, is is going through and trying to find the end beneficiary in terms of a corporate entity, a corporate um, identity. Uh, yep. I, I noticed that you are calculating this um, thing called an actimized trust score. Can you explain how, because I, I assume this is something to do with establishing corporate identities. Can you tell us how you calculate that? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's many different factors. I mean, like, you know, obviously some of the factors that might calculate uh, a risk score or a trust score for a retail customer is going to be slightly different. Um, potentially to um, a corporation. But our goal is to look at, you know, um, what, what are the risk factors that could potentially impact, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the trustiness of an organization, right? Um, I feel a little bit like um, um, I, I may have created a new word there, but ultimately things like um, offshore entities or shell companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, exactly, we want yeah. to... Yeah, we want to understand that, you know, is it is it set up, you know, for a small group of investors, a large group of um, investors, um, you know, where are they kind of, um, there might be things that might lessen the risk, right? So is it a, a publicly traded company, say, for instance, because there's going to be an awful lot of, um, you know, spotlight on those organizations from a regulatory perspective anyway? Um, you know, what, which jo- geographies are they, are they doing business in, right? Um, what kind of products are they are they doing? What what are the the amounts of money that they're actually, um, you know, kind of um, flowing between various different um, accounts? These are the types of factors that we would be looking at as we come to trying to get a an understanding of um, an organisation's trust. Now, when I was researching what you do, um, I was disappointed not to find a- any reference to digital identities and particularly corporate digital identities, but I did come across this term identity resolution. Is that the same thing as a, as a, as a digital identity or corporate digital identity? Indeed, do you believe in digital identity? I hope you do, because we love them at, at Future of Finance. But, but tell us, what is identity resolution? How does it fit with digital identities? Yeah, I think that, you know, what we're striving for is, um, is a digital identity of sort, right? What we're, what we're looking for or what we're looking to do is to create a, um, you know, a, a, an individual trust ID, um, a trust risk score, as it were, uh, and also, you know, the same for a corporation. We want to be able to say, you know, we've gone through, um, you know, a rigorous process of identifying this individual. We've, you know, we've, we've been able to identify 
detected by their um, a real person. We've been able to do the screening. We've been able to um, look at you know any kind of adverse media, social media, whatever the case is going to be. And we are saying that this person is good to do business with. Right. Ultimately, that's what we're aiming to do. Now, as part of that, as part of that, is the concept of identity resolution. There could be multiple different versions of the same individual or corporation, right? Um, for individuals, you know, they open up a multiple different accounts, you know, Steve Taylor, SG Taylor, S Taylor, um, you know, there could be different ways in which they've identified themselves in, in the past. Um, and ultimately, it's still the same person, right? So can we um, intelligently understand that single person for who they are? With corporates, it's it's again a little bit different, but in this in it, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of um, overlap in the sense that you could have a top level organization, lots of different subsidiaries, um, and we need to understand who that you know corporate actually is. Are they are they all part of the same organizational structure? How can we resolve those entities in such a way that we can get a better grip, a better understanding, um, greater transparency? On, on the individual or the corporation itself. And it's not just a question, presumably, of, of establishing that these 105 subsidiaries are all part of the same organization, but finding an individual within those subsidiaries who has the authority to commit that organization. So if you come across a, a payment of $100 million signed by Steve Taylor of a multinational yeah. subsidiary to a bank in the Philippines, how do you police whether that's legitimate. In other words, is this a company officer entitled to send $100 million to this yeah. bank in the Philippines or not? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's all about really getting the right data about the corporation, um, understanding its stakeholders. Um, you know, obviously, you have to understand uh, the beneficial ownership structure, uh, who are the controllers within the companies themselves. Um, you've got to assess and verify all this information um, to make sure that you have got a, a full and, and comprehensive view of the organization, the structure of the organization, the players within the organization. And we need to be able to gather that information, vet it against third party sources, resolve all of this information um, as necessary, identify any anomalies in the, in the individuals themselves, identify the networks in the individuals themselves. And, and that's when we get to that full transparency to understand who is doing what on behalf of the organization. Now that job would be a lot easier if both the multinational and the uh, bank in the Philippines were, were clients of yours. And I was thinking it's clear that you have very um, high levels of penetration of the global banking, global insurance industries. Um, I wonder to what extent, even if they're not clients, uh, banks, firms in an industry are actually prepared to collaborate with each other, to share information with each other about how they do things, who's in charge, what subsidiaries they have, but also what crimes have been perpetrated against them, if you like. Are they, are they prepared to share that sort of data? Are they prepared to collaborate? And am I right to think, A, it's helpful, and B, if it is helpful, how do you think it's best organised? Do we need formal structures for firms in the same industry to cooperate with each other on financial crime? I, th I think that this is a fantastic question, and I really do think that you know, over the next few years, we're going to see the answer to that question maybe play out in reality. So let me try and explain. Um, there are already initiatives within the industry 
for banks to come together and actually start this process of information sharing, um, you know, this kind of consortium approach. Um, in some instances, the banks are initiating this themselves, you know, KYC utilities where they can all come together, get, um, you know, maybe uh, a better view of customer risk, but also, you know, share some of the costs of actually, you know, having to um, implement these types of systems. So those types of things have happened to great or lesser extent, um, you know, throughout the globe. Um, but then there's the regulators. So some of the regulatory agencies themselves are coming in and saying, right, we've got to we've got to take a new look at this. We've got to we've got to change the paradigm somewhat. Uh, in the Netherlands recently, um, the regulators came in and said that they wanted a transaction monitoring utility with some of the top banks in that region. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore um, issued um, a comment paper as such just to say, look, we're looking at doing a utility in Singapore and uh, we want to get some um, input from the industry as to you know, what that should look like, how it should work, how it should operate. Um, there are things already in place um, under the Patriot Act here in the US, 314B is uh, a kind of a provision that allows people to share information um, to you know, identify suspicious activity. I think that um, you know, the regulators in general seem to be moving in this direction of being willing to share information um, you know, within the banks themselves. Um, either the bank sharing information about individuals or indeed the regulators sharing information about what a suspicious activity really looks like. And then, you know, the banks can um, use that data input to help tune and, and hone their own um, systems. So I think that there's a few things going on that will make that happen. But I think also there's a few blockers that still need to be worked through. Privacy, right? Uh, GDPR, CCPA, these are things that... Um, are kind of uh, attention, right? We want to understand everyone, but at the same time, we've got to respect the privacy. So I think that that's a problem that needs to be resolved. And then the second thing I think that might need to be resolved, and I'm seeing signs of this already, right, um, is the encryption. You know, tokenization is one way of doing it, perhaps. Um, you know, um, deploying technology like homomorphic uh, encryption methodologies, I think is just another way of doing it. but. You know, whatever whatever happens when it comes to sharing the information, it's sensitive information. You've got to make sure that um, you are not doing anything that could open anyone up to any um, risk. And what about embarrassment? Uh, our, our banks might have been hacked. The last thing they want to do is tell their competitor that it's happened. Is that is that a problem? They were caught with their trousers down in public, and they don't wish to make that widely known. Potentially, potentially. I think that look, you know. As far as I'm, I can see, and I, I work with a lot of um, people within the industry, everyone has the right and intentions. Everybody wants to catch the bad guys. Nobody wants to see society suffer because of financial crime, right? But, you know, to make this work and to, and to do it in such a way that everyone is safe, it's very, very challenging, right? And there are a lot of concerns that the banks legitimately have. You know, what do the regulators think? What will the public think? You know, what will their competitors do, right? You know, from my perspective, AML is not a competitive advantage, um, as in something that has to be kept proprietary. AML is something that's serving, um, you know, the best interests of society as a whole, right? If we collaborate in the right way, in the right culture to, to facilitate this, then we're going to make a bigger impact on stopping financial crime.
Mm. You mentioned the regulators are starting to encourage this behavior. Are the central banks getting involved and in saying to the banks, well, look, you can do this in a discreet way and it's really helpful if you do it? Um, I haven't had as much exposure to the central banks, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Um, my focus has generally been with the regulatory agencies themselves. Uh, and as I say, on the whole, they're all up for it. Um, I, I can't really comment on the central banks, I'm afraid. No, I just thought they would have more leverage over, over banks in the end. Now, back, back inside the institutions, most of the financial institutions I talk to, their kind of starting point is, is a database like WorldCheck or, or Bureau Van Dyke. What are you doing to help your clients improve upon that, those data sets? Well, you know, I, I have nothing but the, the highest respect for um, organizations like WorldCheck, Bureau Van Dyke, you know, Dow Jones, Dun & Bradstreet, whatever the case is going to be. Um, they have, um, you know, uh, great um, uh, resources, great assets that are proven incredibly beneficial um, to, to the financial institutions. In many ways, we work in partnership with those organizations. Um, you know, we've got um, uh, the risk engines, we've got the case management tools, we've got, um, you know, the, the machine learning capabilities. Um, and the more we can blend that content into our systems, the more impactful that's going to be. If we can take some of these data sets, if we can apply um, you know, entity resolution across those data sets, if we can apply network risk analysis across those data sets, map that directly into a client um, you know, account list itself, their internal data as well, all of a sudden you get this richer um, kind of profile of individuals and corporations, right? So I think in many ways, um, there's, a, there's a lot of benefit to be had by us all coming together and bringing this information for the banks to easily consume. Right, so your engines are basically eating these, this data and blending it with other stuff. Now, does the Correct. other stuff you blend it with include the proprietary data of, of your customers? And, and if so, how valuable is that? It, it does. So we would link with some of the core banking systems. We bring in the transactional information um, directly from the banks themselves. Um, that's going to be key to everything that we do. Um, but also, you know, um, uh, the, the way in which the banks use our systems, right? Um, the way in which they um, manage the alerts, the disposition history. This is all feeding back directly into better detection overall. Right. So we bring all this data in, we enrich it with um, third party data, we can enrich it with unstructured data that comes directly from the Internet. We can bring in you know, client specific data that might have been gathered at the point of onboarding or during ongoing KYC. And we can bring all of this information together. And, and from that, you can better detect what's going on. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about where financial crime is, is happening these days. Historically, it's obviously taken place in the, if you want to have a better term, the payments industry, for the obvious reason that money is moving between accounts, that's an opportunity for a, for a criminal. Do you see any evidence that criminals are now, because of the work that organisations like yours and, uh, and others have done and the banks themselves have done to, to clamp down on that, do you see they're switching their activity to other industries? I'm thinking in particular the securities industry, where again, large sums of value do change hands, uh, but also trade finance, which is um, another area where um, there's a lot of manual processes, a lot of paper, a lot of opportunities, an awful lot of people involved in the chain. Do you see a focus switching away from payments towards securities and trade finance? 
Unfortunately, I, I wouldn't say it's switching away. I think it's always been there, right? Uh -huh. um, I think that, you know, um, criminals have always looked to um, profit from market abuse, right? So they've always tried to find an avenue to, you know, be able to, um, you know, manipulate the markets to move illicit wealth, right? That's something that they've always tried to do. And I think in trade finance, I mean, that has always been ripe for money laundering, right? I think the industry knows this as a whole. I, I believe I heard once and, and um, you know, that 80% of the money that is actually laundered is done through trade finance, right? Now, if that's true, um, that's a staggering number, right? It really genuinely is. But you can understand why. Um, on the trade finance side of things, it's, it's, it's very difficult to understand what's going on. It's paper-based. Um, it's complex. There's lots of different intermediaries. It, it's, it's possible um, to easily hide the flows of money when it comes to trade finance. So I, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, these things are, are just cropping up um, because we were doing a better job on the payment side of things. I think that these things have already been there. Um, and, and maybe there's, there's, you know, more focus of, of using those vehicles to, to launder money. But I am glad to say that the regulators um, and the banks are, are very much aware of this, right? And if you're looking at something like um, FATF, if you're looking at the AMLA 2020 over here in the US, if you're looking at um, you know, some of the things that are happening in, in Europe, um, regulatory development in Europe, we're beginning to, as an industry, start seeing and cracking down on some of these um, potential avenues for um, you know, financial crime. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time to really get into it, uh, maybe in, make an impact, but we've started the process and uh, you know, over the, the course of the next few years, we're going to get more advanced in our capabilities to um, you know, stop financial crime in these realms. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you've talked a lot about trade finance. You, you've said it's always been there. You've said regulators are getting involved. But I did notice that the, the FCA, the regulator here in the UK, had written one of its famous dear CEO letters to trade finance banks yeah. and, and others, instructing them, in effect, to, to improve and you know, lift their game on, on combating uh, financial crime. So to some extent, whatever they've been doing, hasn't been working very well. And maybe it's impossible for the reasons you've described, but do you think there has been a, well, maybe a better way to ask this question. Do you think the regulatory focus on trade finance is justified? I do think it's justified. Um, and I think it's something that we need to put more focus on if I'm being candid. Um, there, are, there are some you know, initiatives right now that are, are really putting the magnifying glass on, on trade finance. And, and as I say, rightly so. Um, it's a difficult nut to crack. And I think that there's going to be um, you know, a lot of um, work uh, involved to actually identify how we make this happen. Um, you know, the AML guys, the back office, the compliance folk are one area to solving this problem. But the front office, right, is also a, a key part in how we manage this on an ongoing basis. And they um, are an important stakeholder in the solution. So we really do need to work holistically and collectively um, to make an impact.
But one of the ways that banks have been solving the problem is to stop doing the business. You know, we've seen substantial withdrawal of banks from, from yep. trade finance, from correspondent banking, yep. simply because of the risk of financial crime and of, of getting funds. They have no idea, ultimately, who the, the customer of their own customer is. is. Is there a solution to sort of, is there a know your customer's customer yeah. out there somewhere yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I think that there is. Um, it is more challenging to know your customer's customer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in correspondent banking, when you're looking at counterparties, you know, you will know your customer because they have to supply a certain amount of information. But knowing your customer's customer, um, you know, there may not be as much information available in order to um, adequately detect um, the risk of those um, individuals or those corporations. Um, but I think that, you know, there is technology out there that can better now identify who the counterparties actually are. And I think that as we advance in, you know, collating data, technology, and, you know, machine learning capabilities together, I think that we are in a much better place now to provide solutions for knowing your customers' customer problems. And you're seeing trade finance firms, security firms actually buying this, this technology, this data, they're actually listening to the regulators, they're trying to solve this problem in ways other than getting out of the business. In other words, are they, are they improving their preparedness? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we're having a lot of conversations of late actually around correspondent banking specifically, right? Um, you know, kudos to the banks. They know that this is an issue. It's something that they are conscious of and it's something that they're looking to solve. Um, And we're working in partnership now with a number of institutions to put solutions in place. And you haven't talked that much about about the securities industry, but it's been implicit in a lot of what you've said. And I was was thinking of of incidents which have happened in the securities industry, for example, where a a global custodian bank has inadvertently found that one of its sub-custodian banks was actually holding uh, bonds issued by a or, or purchased by a sanctioned state, for example. And this has led to um, a considerable flurry of activity inside the, uh, the security services industry in particular and led to the issuance by the International Security Services Association of these financial crime compliance principles. But up to that point, they kind of relied upon the previous person in the chain to, to have done their proper KYC work. And if it was good enough for them, it was kind of good enough for me. But with this increased regulatory focus on on the industry, the increased propensity of financial criminals to go after the uh, the securities industry, uh, clearly they, they felt there was a need for change. I don't know. Do you come across those financial crime compliance principles when you're when you're dealing with with financial institutions and they're making use of them in their day to day business? Are they a useful thing to have done? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like you know, we we traditionally as an organisation, um, you know, worked with with the banks predominantly, right? Um, but as, as you know, obviously some of the regulatory agencies are now looking outside of the banking industry per se and looking into securities, looking into insurance and, and looking into other areas within the financial services industry. You know, there is a lot more focus and scrutiny on what organizations need to do in order to protect themselves against uh, AML risk and, and to stop financial crime. So, you know, one of the areas of growth for us um, has been within the securities industry. Um, There's, um, you know, obviously a lot of complexity there. Um, It may not be as mature 
from an AML perspective as the banking industry is. Um, you know, obviously it hasn't had as much attention um, um, in the past, but this is something that I see that the firms are very much aware of. It's something that they're driving toward. And, and you know, as I say, it's something that we can help them with and we are helping them with. I'd like to ask you a little bit about changing financial technology, if you like. You, you touched a, a few minutes ago upon tokenization as a way of sharing data without breaching uh, customer confidentiality. But now we're seeing the industry moving towards digitization in the sense of assets being being digitized. To what extent are things like um, like cryptocurrencies and the possibility of tokenizing physical assets like real estate, like commodities, like, like precious metals, fine art, collectibles, even intellectual properties is talked about, even though that's not particularly physical. So any, any form of asset, any form of income stream can now theoretically be digitized, can be issued onto these blockchain-based networks, and uh, investors still have to be KYC'd and AML to purchase those, and issuers still have to be KYC'd and AML. To what extent is this these type of developments, I'm talking here specifically of, of cryptocurrencies and security tokens, how are they changing the way you're having to work with your clients? Because you, you, you now, you've got issuers and investors um, on these completely digital decentralized yep. networks, buying digital assets, buying and selling digital assets, and indeed custodying them as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that Unfortunately, some of the underlying risk and, and the way in which you know money is laundered is, is not that different. It, it's just the mechanisms are slightly different, right? So in many ways, it's it's really about when we're when we're talking to our banks and our customers, it's it's about you know educating them that actually there's these new elements, these new assets, these new asset types that you now need to be aware of. And, you know, with the crypto side of things um, in particular, um, we, we've noticed with some organizations that it may not be clear to them just how much crypto risk exposure they actually have, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, on, on, the, on the tokenization of assets in general, I mean, like, look, you know, I think it's a great thing for, you know, individuals and, and investors alike. You know, we're, we're really now beginning to democratize, as it were, um, the capability to invest and, and to own, you know, elements of, uh, of, of um, you know, things that we couldn't necessarily have, whether or not that's a piece of artwork or if that's a, a building or, or whatever the case is going to be. But I think that, you know, with that flexibility, we really do need to bake into um, tokenization, uh, you know, the capability to, um, you know, put a, that digital ID in there. If you've got that just right and you know everything about what's going on, and if it's done in the right and appropriate way, then the compliance is going to be an awful lot easier to, to do, right? Um, you know, one of the challenges of, you know, where things are today is that as you're going through the process of um, you know, transferring money or opening up accounts or doing this kind of stuff, you know, one of the barriers to making it happen is all, all the compliance checks that need to happen. Now, obviously, they need to happen. But if there's a way in which that can be done in a more streamlined way through um, digitized technology, right, so that you are more certain of who you're doing business with or what you're doing business with, because it's got that, as it were, non-editable um, 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 digital, you know, authentication, then, then that's going to help, right? That's going to help 
everything, right? And it's going to stop maybe some of the um, potential um, bad things that could, could happen if we can get that part of it right. And are you confident we, we can get that part of it right? You know, if, if, if I talk to somebody who's launching a, uh, a, a token exchange, if you like, a, a token issuance trading settlement platform, and you say to them, well, don't you need to do KYC and AML on the, on the investors? I say, yeah, of course we do, uh, but it'll be done automatically through data flows between nodes um, using APIs, and it'll all be done in a matter of, a matter of seconds. Is that too... Um, bly the view of, of, of how this is actually going to work. Is it possible to onboard an investor onto a blockchain network having fully coerced and AML them within a matter of seconds or minutes or not? I think it is possible. And I think that that's the way that it has to be, right? Um, now, all of these systems are open to abuse. All of these people may just pay lip service to the AML requirements. But as I say, it has to go down this route. We have to, um, you know, as, as part of this new digital uh, revolution, as it were, um, which has tremendous value and, and opens up tremendous opportunities for a whole bunch of people. Um, we have to make sure that the compliance is managed in the most appropriate way. It can be done. It should be done. And I think it's feasible and possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll start sending some some token networks and networks your way. Um, <laughs> well, I'm I'm hoping I can own a bit of the Mona Lisa if that's possible. Well, talking of that, um, I was thinking that we don't have many security tokens uh, now. Last time I looked, about ten billion, which is completely trivial in relation to <laughs> the, the securities markets as they as they exist today. But the what has been growing quite quite quickly is is the non fungible token, the NFT markets. Yeah. And you've got some very old fashioned frauds happening there. You know, people. The one that caught my eye was a false Banksy. And somebody yes. paid two hundred forty-four thousand pounds. They got their money back in the end. But but this is just old-fashioned um, selling fakes, if you like. And, and I guess the art world's been famous for that for quite a long time. But do you think that that NFTs in particular, and they're kind of paving the way for security tokens? Do you think they represent a very specific form of of risk that you have to take into account? Yeah, I think you, you said it there, Dominic. It, it, it's nothing necessarily new, right? Um, money has been laundered through the art world, unfortunately, for generations. It's nothing new. It's just a different spin on it, right? Um, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, and, and I, I get the technology and I get it all. I, I don't understand, you know, why people get so excited about owning a digital um, image of something, to be quite honest with you, and, and especially if you can you know, look at that image um, for free elsewhere. But anyway, that beside the point, um, you know, value is in the eye of the beholders. And if people are seeing that these are valuable assets, um, they can launder money through those valuable assets. And I think, you know, the the risk is, is there. And, and I think that, unfortunately, it's no different to what's been going on in the art world um, for for quite a long period of time. Um, I know that as part of AMLA 2020 and, and some of the things that Treasury FinCEN over here has been doing is to say, well, you know, the banking industry has had, you know, uh, the eye of Mordor, for want of a better term, on this now for, for decades. But actually, we need to turn the eye to look elsewhere. And, you know, that could be property. That could be the art world. 
Um, these are things that need to be addressed. You know, um, billions have been laundered um, through the art world. Um, billions have been laundered through the property industry. Um, these guys have, um, you know, those, those areas have been ripe for um, financial crime for years. We've got to put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought you were talking there about central London. But I think <laughs> we won't go there. Um, but no, it's strictly not your responsibility, but uh, I think I'm right to say, but um, nice Activize also offer market surveillance services. And so we can imagine a future when the security token markets have actually taken off. We've got uh, blockchain-based token trading networks interoperating with each other and all sorts of uh, uh, tokenized assets being exchanged for cash and for each other across these networks. Are your, are your market surveillance services, those ones which are specifically designed to track inside of dealing market abuse and so on are those being adapted to that possibility or is it too soon to be thinking that way well we're, we're already not any different anyway i don't know maybe it's just another... well i think you just hit the nail on the head there dominic it's not that different and, and this is the thing right the the digital world is just finding different ways of doing the same old thing right um and and it, it's just a different outlet and in some ways it, it could make it easier right um to actually launder the money right just as it's making it easier for us to own things just as it's making it easier for us to transfer money around just as it's making it easier for us to you know kind of um uh you know buy assets and and trade and all this kind of good stuff through whatever platform you want to use this technology is brilliant for legitimate use but it's it's potentially accelerating financial crime Right. So it's the same old methodologies, just a different, maybe quicker, more accelerated route to making it actually happening. Right. So all I'm trying to say is we, we, we are thinking about it. it. It is a point of interest and concern for us. We have to shift our lenses just a little bit to look at the new reality. But the underlying problem, unfortunately, is still the same. A bit reluctant to ask this question because it's. Um... I'm going to ask you which markets you think are the most exciting in terms of uh, uh, being target rich for you because financial crime is on the increase. Your business has historically been very focused in the United States and and Europe. Not surprisingly, that's I'm talking about your financial services business. That's where the big financial centers are. But of course, Asia is now becoming um, very, very important uh, in in terms of financial markets, asset allocation, investments. they're very uh, excited about moving towards digital assets and away from securities. Uh, there are all sorts of very exciting things happening there, and that is going to get financialized uh, as yep. time goes on. So do you, do you think that's where the next big opportunity for your business is? Is it in Asia or is it somewhere else? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's in a technology. Yeah, I think, I think that there's um, you know, a number of different areas where we have to keep um you know in our minds right so first of all there's the emerging jurisdictions um you know in in asia in africa um you know um, in south america emerging nations that are um looking to establish their uh, banking industries right and make sure that they have credible um you know programs in place to ensure that the 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 you know the the business is legitimate so i think those are areas that we need to keep an eye on um, there are some areas that maybe are you know, sophisticated capital markets 
but um, you know, if I had maybe some refocus or some attention on them, you know, um, I think that there's areas and jurisdictions where, you know, FATF, say for instance, in Japan has um, um, made some recommendations there. There's been some other issues maybe out of Australia, um, you know, where we see that, you know, those individual jurisdictions are looking to strengthen their compliance programs. So that is obviously an area for us. Um, the fintechs, um, you know, is an area for us. Um, and also, you know, as we're looking to the markets themselves, we're seeing um, different segments, as I mentioned, insurance, securities. Those are areas that are coming under the spotlight. So these are all areas that we uh, are looking at and, and hopefully we can help in, uh, you know, the banks and the financial institutions in those segments, put mm -hmm. the right ML programs in place. And do you do you see technological innovations like I'm thinking of maybe of smart contracts, but I'm also thinking of quantum computing. Do you see these as as areas you have to keep an eye on because they change the nature of the risks that you're trying to manage, the, the risk of financial crime? Absolutely. I mean, like, there's a number of different things that we have to be aware of. Right. Um, new business practices, um, regulation, technology. These are all things that are changing on a day-to-day, -day, the paradigm, right? And, um, you know, we've got to keep up with it. We've got to make sure that we are, um, you know, uh, aware of what's happening within the industry and, you know, provide the thought leadership for our customers in how to deal with these new and emerging risks. Asim, I'm going to ask you one, one final question. If I look back over everything we've talked about, uh, during this conversation, you could be forgiven for thinking that this is just a, a, a problem which is ultimately insoluble. So my question is, is financial crime in some sense soluble or is this just a, a permanent Red Queen race that we're all involved in where you have to run very fast just to stand still because the problems that, that the criminals are changing, the nature of crime is changing, it's mutating all the time, you have a formidable enemy? We do have a formidable enemy. And um, that enemy, enemy is, is greed, right? Um, I'm not entirely sure we're ever going to find a cure for greed. Um, there are people out there that may not believe in society. They may not believe in human rights. They may not believe in, you know, a lot of the values that civilizations hold dear. Um, and those are the criminals. Those are the people that want the quick wins. Those are the people that think that they're above the law. And those are the people that are looking to profit um, at the expense of other people, right? Um, there's always going to be those individuals. And as I say, you, it's very difficult to legislate and to stop greed. But that said, I think that we can make a better dent on what's actually happening, right? Um, technology is accelerating at a crazy rate. Um, I want to harness that technology for positive ends. I think and I do believe that we can do so much more with the technology advances that we're seeing today in really combating financial crime. And it's funny, I was just talking to our teams a little bit earlier on today. We as an organization, all of the vendors out there in the compliance space, in the AML space, we all have a responsibility to provide solutions that enable our clients to fight financial crime. It is our responsibility um, to do whatever we can to make that happen. 
But one stat that you know keeps bouncing around in my head um, is that there are reportedly about 40 million people today that live in modern slavery, right? Um, people that have been trafficked. Um, and when you think that, you know, 70%, just over 70% of that 40 million people are women and girls uh, as sex slaves, right? Um, that's a terrible, terrible statistic. It's our responsibility to do everything that we can to fix that problem uh, and to try to, to, to stop it from happening in the future, right? So it's a big responsibility. Um, I don't think that we're ever going to stop greed, but we can make a dent in financial crime. Since you've raised that, I'm going to be I'm going to be greedy and ask you one more question. Which is, <laughs> of course. <laughs> do you do you do you think that the efforts of of everybody, not just your organisation, but of um, of anti fraud entities everywhere, get sufficient support from national governments and and the police uh, in every jurisdiction? You know, one's constantly aware of fraud being committed, you know where it's coming from, and often you know exactly who is who is committing that that fraud. These are these are organizations inside countries well known to all of us, yet these organizations carry on regardless because they're not troubled by the police or the authorities in any way. Do you think there needs to be some kind of uh, I don't know, I'm hesitant to use this word, but some kind of supranational uh, effort to encourage governments and police forces to engage with these issues which you've just mentioned now? I think that there are already a number of efforts and initiatives underway to try and stop this, right? Um, can we do more, right? Can there be more focus? Can there move more attention on this? Absolutely. Do we feel that perhaps some blind eyes are being turned? I, I think that that might be happening. Right. Um, but there's enough of us out there that when we come together, we can shine a light on this. And I also think that if the regulators, um, the financial institutions, law enforcement, right, vendors such as ourselves, you know, let's just put the competition aside for a second. Right. It doesn't matter about that. We're all in the same business here, which is collectively we need to stop as best as we possibly can bad things from happening and we've got to stop bad guys from doing bad things right and and this is something that we all ought to be rallying around um, i'm glad to say that law enforcement is doing as much as it possibly can the regulators are doing as much as they possibly can the banks are, are trying the vendors are trying now if we can come together in the right ways consortium approaches, say, for instance, you know, regulators supporting the capabilities of, you know, new technology coming through, regulators and um, vendors working together, vendors and vendors working together. If we can do this in the right way, um, we will make an impact. Mm -hmm. We better stop there. Stephen Taylor, thank you very much.